What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Last week, we started the second main section in our outline titled Deliverance, and we see that God brings deliverance in two main ways. He brings it through blood and through His power. And last week, we looked at how God brought deliverance through blood, uh, specifically as we looked at the Passover. And, you know, the Passover was God's way of protecting the Israelites from this final horrible plague of the killing of all firstborn uh, people and all firstborn animals. And it was also a way for God to remind the Israelites of what he was about to do and this deliverance that he was bringing, this Passover feast was to bring back to remembrance what they did. And God gave the Israelites six specific things they were to do to protect themselves, six specific things they were to do to remind them of what God was going to do. But we also recognize these six things were more than just a preparation, more than just a protection, more than just a reminder. They were also something to point them to an even greater deliverance that God God was going to do through Jesus. Now, the main thing that God told the Israelites to do to protect them from the 10th plague was on the 14th day of the month, they were to take that lamb without blemish that they had chosen on the 10th day, and they were to kill that lamb, and then they were going to take the blood of the lamb without blemish, and they put it on their doorpost and on their lintel. And the purpose of that was when the death angel came, when God's judgment came, when this final plague of killing the firstborn uh, firstborn came, then they would pass over their house if they had the blood of the lamb on there. And for every home that was not protected by the blood of the lamb, the firstborn in their home was killed. That included Pharaoh's house. He lost his firstborn that night. And this was the plague that finally changed Pharaoh's hard heart. He finally went from continual, no, I will not do what God says, to finally, you can go, not only can you go, get out of Egypt. I don't want you here any more. So the first way that God delivered the Israelites is through blood from the lamb without blemish. And tonight we're going to see the second thing that God uses to deliver Israel. We're going to see more of God's power. We've seen God's power displayed 10 specific times, and now we're going to see it displayed in another wonderful way as God enables the Israelites to cross through the Red Sea. Now, as we saw in chapter 12, part of that is really just sharing what God's going to do to protect and to deliver the Israelites, but also another part of it was to remind the Israelites of deliverance. And we're going to see this same pattern here in chapters 13 and 14. Chapter 13 is really all about instructions that will bring a reminder, all these things that they're supposed to be doing in the future that will remind them of what God has done. And then chapter 14 is going to be the God's actual deliverance through power. And so we're going to look at both of these chapters tonight. They go perfectly together. And so let's see first what we can learn from the instructions that God gives here in chapter 13 that were to remind them of His deliverance. Starting in verse 1 says this, Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both of man and beast, it is mine. Now, God has just delivered all the firstborn, that plague that was sent. He he protected those who put that blood on the doorposts and lintel. And so he says, hey, I'm the one who's protected your firstborn, and now I want you to do something to me. You need to consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the children of Israel, both man and beast, it is mine. So God is saying, hey, you have to consecrate to me every firstborn, both of people and of animals. Why? Because I protected both the people and the animals from this plague. Now, this word consecrate uh, means to be set apart, to be sanctified or consecrated. Uh, And so God is saying, hey, from now on, 
Something's going to happen. Just like we saw in last chapter, God says, from now on, the calendar is going to change. This month of deliverance is now going to be the first month that's going to remind you of what I've done. Well, now there's something else from now on that you're going to do to remind you of what I've done. You're going to have to set apart every firstborn person and animal to me. Consecrate them to me. And this is for a main purpose. I want you to do this so you will remember how I protected your firstborn. And this is something that's so important because we forget so easily. We see throughout Scripture God doing specific things. Feast, even with communion, Jesus says, do this and remember to me. Things that we have to regularly do so we don't forget some of the most important things that God has done for us. And so God starts by saying, every time there is a firstborn born, I don't care if it's an animal or a person, you set them apart from me. You consecrate them to me as a reminder of my protection over your firstborn. Verse 3, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you went out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, for by strength of the hand of the Lord brought you out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. On this day you are going out in the month of Abib. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you a land flowing with milk and honey that you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten seven days and no leavened bread shall be seen among you, nor shall leaven be seen among you or all in all your quarters. And you shall tell your son in that day saying, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. It shall be as a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Well, now once again, God has another instruction, an instruction for the ultimate purpose of remembering what He has done. And so He tells him, hey, remember this day in which you went out of Egypt. And the way I want you to remember it this time is I'm going to give you this feast of unleavened bread. And so in this month, during a whole week, you're going to only have unleavened bread in your home. And remember, we looked at last week, they didn't have any leaven, they weren't able to because they didn't have time. They had to be ready to go right when God delivered them. And so for a week in this month, every year, you're going to take a moment to remember what I have done. And this Feast of Unleavened Bread is going to remind you of my deliverance. And when your children ask you, why do we have to eat unleavened bread for a whole week? What's going on? Why are we celebrating this feast? That's a perfect opportunity for you to say, this is done because of what the Lord did for me when I came up from Egypt. So we're celebrating this to not only remind ourselves who have personally been delivered, but to remind future generations of what God has done. God goes on to say, it shall be a sign to you on your hand as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For the strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. So God is saying this is not just to be celebrated once, Every single year during this month, in the week of this month, I want you to celebrate this feast as a reminder of what I've done. And they still celebrate it to this day in Israel. Well, God has some more instructions for the Israelites in verse 11 through 16. And it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as He swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, that you shall set apart to the Lord all that open the womb. That is, every firstborn that comes from an animal which you have, the male shall be the Lord's. But every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, and if you will not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. And all the firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. So it shall be when your son asks you in time to come, saying, What is this? That you shall say to him, By strength of hand, the Lord has brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beast. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Egypt. 
So here God gives another instruction very similar to the one that he started with, that they are doing something to set apart the firstborn. But now he goes even deeper, gets even more specific. So he says, all right, you guys are going to start with this feast. Every time, well, not the feast, every time a firstborn is born, whether animal or person, you set them apart to me. But now I have something even more than that that I want you to do. If that firstborn animal or that firstborn child is male, you got to do more than just set them apart. You also have to redeem them. Now this is very interesting that God brings this out. This Greek Hebrew word, sorry, translated redeem means to buy back, to be ransomed, to redeem. So God is establishing a law here. It's the law of the firstborn. It's something that we'll see more details of as we continue on through the book of Exodus. We're also given more details in the book of Numbers. But what this law is basically saying is that every single male firstborn belongs to God. And it's coming back to this point of, hey, I I saved them all. I protected them. And so now they belong to me. And so if you want them, you got to redeem them. You have to buy them back for me. I, I own them. They're mine. And so every time a male son or every time a male animal, clean or unclean, is born, you need to redeem them. You need to buy them back from me. And so there's three different groups of firstborn males. There's the clean animals, so like sheep. There's the unclean animals like donkeys. And then there's the final category, which are people. So baby boys. All of them belong to God. But notice that only the unclean male animals and the baby boys can be redeemed. They're the only ones that can be bought back. Why? Because the clean animals, they had another purpose. Sacrifice. If you have a clean animal who's born as a male, then you need to sacrifice that to the Lord. But if you have an unclean one, or if you have a baby boy, you must redeem that before the Lord. Now, it's interesting that you had a choice. So if you have an unclean animal, the firstborn is a male, say a donkey, you can make a choice. I can redeem that donkey back to myself, and the cost of redemption is I must kill a lamb to do it. So if I want to keep this donkey, I'm going to have to sacrifice and kill a lamb. That's the price I have to pay to buy that donkey back to myself. But if I don't want to keep the donkey because I value the lamb more than the donkey, then I can't keep the donkey. I have to kill it. Got to break its neck. Why? It doesn't belong to me. It's not mine. And I have to recognize this is the Lord's. And either I buy it back or I end its life. Those are my only two options that I have with these unclean animals. And so if I want to buy it from the Lord, great. I'll redeem it with the price of a lamb. And if I don't want to buy it back, I'll kill it. But you had that choice. You could choose whether to buy back an unclean animal or not. But with a child, fortunately, you don't have the choice. You buy that child back. Now, it didn't cost you a lamb. It cost you something different. Numbers chapter 18, verse 16 says this, And those redeemed of the devoted things you shall redeem when one month old, according to your valuation, for five shekels of silver. Now, in that culture, to have a firstborn male, that was something the scene is very blessed. And what you would do is redeem that male. He belongs to the Lord, and you buy him back. And the cost of buying him back was five shekels of silver. And when the children would ask, why do you do this? Why are you buying back the firstborn babies? Why are you buying back these unclean animals who are male? Why are you doing this? God says, that's a perfect time for you to express why we're doing this. By strength of hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And it came to pass when Pharaoh was stubborn and letting us uh, about letting us go, that the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of beasts. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all males that open the wound, but of all the firstborn of my sons, I redeem. So once again, God is saying, hey, the purpose of doing this is to remind all of the nation of Israel. He's got all these different feasts, all these different ways, all these different instructions to bring remembrance of what he has done, how he protected their firstborn. Now, just like we saw with the Passover, the law of the firstborn is establishing something that not only reminds the Israelites of what God did in the past, but it's also doing something else. It is pointing them to something that he's going to do in the future. You see, God is helping the Israelites understand something very important, this concept of redemption 
of buying something back. They're, they're doing it all the time. Every time they have this male unclean animal, they're choosing to sacrifice a lamb in order to buy it back for themselves. And God is having them do that not only to remember what he's done in delivering them and protecting them in Egypt, but he's having them do that to point them to something far greater, a redemption that he's going to do for not just the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. Our sin has separated us from a relationship with God, and He had to redeem us. He had to buy us back. But He couldn't buy us back with five shekels of silver, which was only the cost that it was to the nation of Israel to buy back their son. It cost Him much more. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by traditions from your fathers. Okay, well then what were we redeemed by? but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So the Israelites, they redeemed their baby boys with five shekels of silver. God redeemed us with the most valuable thing that He has, His own life. His blood was shed so that we could be redeemed. He bought us with His own life. And so this law of the firstborn reminds the nation of Israel what God did in the past, but points them to something He was going to do that was going to be far greater in the future. Verse 17, Then it came to pass when Pharaoh had let the people go that God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest perhaps the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the way of the wilderness of the Red Sea. And the children of Israel went up in orderly ranks out of the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh finally said, all right, you can get out of here, leave Egypt. Now the Israelites are departing from Egypt and God is directing them. And God specifically says, I'm not going to take you the most direct route to the promised land. As you can see here from this map, the most common route if you're going to leave Egypt and go to the promised land would be going along the Mediterranean Sea there at the top of the map. You would just follow the Mediterranean Sea and you go straight up to Israel. That's the most direct route. It's the one near water. It's a perfect way to go. That's what people would do if they were traveling to the land of Canaan. But that is not the route that God chose. And there's a reason why. That route goes through Philistine territory. And God knew if I take the nation of Israel down that route through the Philistine territory, there's going to be war. And I don't want to do that because if the Israelites experience war right away, they might turn around and want to go back to Egypt. So God says, I have a different route that I'm going to take them. One that's going to be a lot longer. One that's not going to be as direct. One that's going to go down through the wilderness. And if you see that red line there, that's a likely route. We don't know the exact route that they took. But they definitely went down through the wilderness. It's much longer. And you know what? It's probably not the route that they would have chosen. Not the route that we would have chosen. You know, whenever I'm looking to get somewhere, I love that we have technology. I love that we have GPS. I love that we have all these different ways in which we can discover, all right, type in your address and it'll tell you what the traffic is, what you can avoid. Because my plan always is, how can I get from A to B the fastest way? Uh, that's what I want. You know, if I can get there, you know, in the fastest way possible, that seems to me to be the best route. But you know what? God didn't choose the fastest way. That wasn't really the best route for Israel. And I think so often that's what he does with us. He says, you know what? I got this longer path. I got this longer route. And you know, it's going to go through the wilderness and, and we don't really like going through the wilderness, but God says, there's a purpose in this. I have a reason for this, and it's ultimately for your good. Oh no, Lord, my good would be getting there as soon as possible. I want to go to the direct route. No, I'm not going to take you to the direct route. And we have one reason already why God doesn't do it. I'm going to protect you. Because if I take you that direct route, the Philistines are coming for you. And you're going to have war. And it's not going to be good for you. And so we're not going to do that. I have another plan. And as we continue with this chapter, and as we look at the next several chapters, we're going to see that God has several great reasons for why He's taking them this long way through the wilderness, because there's so many lessons that He wants to teach them. I think something important to remember is that the way that God directs our lives is not often the way that we would choose to go. And when that happens, we have a choice to make. 
Am I going to trust that God has good reason for His direction? Am I going to trust that God's way is best for me? Or am I going to hold to the fact that, no, Lord, we got to go with the most direct route. we got to go with the fastest route. we got to go with my route. That's the route that's best. As opposed to, God, no, I'm going to trust what your way and your journey, even if it's through the wilderness, that that's the best thing for me, that you want me there for a reason. Well, now we're told that Moses does very, something very important before he departs from Egypt. Verse 19. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under solemn oath, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here with you. Now, if you remember back in Genesis, Joseph does something wonderful. Right before he's about to die, he does something that would have given the nation of Israel hope in the promise of what God has said, because God told Joseph, hey, You're going to go, but I'm going to take your descendants from Egypt back to the promised land. Joseph never got to experience departing from Egypt back to the promised land. He's about to die, and he tells them, you know what? Take my bones with you. Genesis 50, 25 and 26. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him. And he was put in a coffin in Egypt. This is a great act of faith on Joseph's part. And you know, that coffin was just a constant reminder. Remember what Joseph said? We're going to take his bones. God doesn't have us here for good. We're not staying here in Egypt. God's going to deliver us and bring us back to the promised land. I'm sure lots of people forgot that. I'm sure lots of people said that's never going to happen. That was hundreds of years ago that he died. But now all of a sudden, God's been faithful to His promise, and Moses is being faithful to the promise that the nation of Israel made to Joseph that said, when we go, we're not going to leave your bones here. We're going to take them with us, and we're going to bury them in the promised land. And so Moses makes sure that he fulfills the promise. Verse 20, So they took their journey from Sukkoth and camped in Etham at the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. So now the nation of Israel, they're traveling out of Egypt. Moses has got Joseph's bones. They're ready to head to wherever God has them. Now, they would probably be thinking, let's just take the most direct route, Mediterranean Sea, let's do it. No, God is directing them, but how would they know where God wants them to go? Well, God's making it real clear. He didn't just leave them a map. He didn't write down directions. He says, here, I am going to guide you in a miraculous, visible way that none of you are going to be able to miss. You're gonna sh- I'm going to show you exactly the path that I want you to take. And notice the visible way that God um, guides them by day. He leads them with this pillar of cloud, and by night, He leads them with a pillar of fire. Now, I like this artist's rendition of what this pillar of cloud and pillar of fire might have looked like, but I already noted that this is God who's directing the Israelites. God is taking them on this longer route through the wilderness, and He's doing this in amazing ways, and I'm sure it was a comfort. You know, when you go to a place and you don't know where you are, sometimes you, you know, Siri, GPS, leads us to places where they're not supposed to, and you're like, I don't have a clue where I am. How am I going to get out of here? You know, when you're not familiar with your surroundings, when you don't know where you are, what a comfort to know God's here. God's directing. He's the one leading and guiding. And maybe we don't know this wilderness because we've been in Egypt our whole life, but you know what? We got God leading us, and I'm sure that was a great comfort to them. But this pillar of cloud and fire didn't just lead and direct them. It also did something else. Psalm 105.39 said, He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light in the night. So not only did it direct them, but it did something else for them because guess what? The wilderness around there, it's hot. You're walking through the day in the heat of the sun, that's going to be miserable. What did this cloud do? It protected them from the sun as well. Not only directed them where they were needing to go, but it gave them shade to walk under as well. In the pillar of fire, it didn't only lead them at night, but it also gave them light to see at night. So God leads them down to the Red Sea on the edge of the wilderness. And now we come to chapter 14. We have all these instructions for remembrance 
And now we see another amazing display of God's power, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they turn and camp before Pihariath, between Migdal and the sea, opposite Baal-Zephon. You shall camp before it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. At this point in time, there, remember last chapter we saw there's 600,000 men. So when you add women and children, you got a couple million. Israelites that are journeying through the wilderness. They've come down to this specific point at the edge of the wilderness by the Red Sea. And it's really interesting that God has led them to a place where they're actually boxed in, a place where they're going to be trapped. And God tells them, you know, to camp in this place, Pihahirath, which means mouth of the water, between Migdal and the sea opposite Baal-Zephon. Now, there's some debate among scholars as to where this specific location was, but I want to show you a very likely possibility. Here's a picture of a place that would fit with what the description is given here um, in the scriptures. Pihariath is just the ultimately the mouth of the water. So that could be lots of different places, but as you come out, that there would be the mouth of the water, so that fits with this. Now, Migdal um, is a mountain range, and opposite of it is the other side of the Red Sea, Baal Zephon. And so you could kind of find yourself on this Red Sea area in different places, but um, that black circle that you see in this picture is a very large beach. Uh, behind it is the mountain range, And you'll notice that kind of narrow valley that kind of leads you out into the beach. And in front of you then, when you came out, would be the Red Sea. And notice what God told Moses to tell to the nation of Israel. For Pharaoh will say of the children of Israel, they are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in, so they're trapped. Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them. And I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. So if the Israelites are on this beach, Pharaoh knows that they took this journey through, you know, these mountain ranges with that narrow way. And he says, well, I know where they're coming out. They're trapped if they go that way. If they go forward, they can't. The Red Sea's there. If they try to go left or right, the mountain ranges are there. And if they try to come back, hey, if we pursue them, then we'll be there. It'll be a perfect place to trap them, a perfect place to get and kill or bring them back, whatever we want to do. There's a documentary called The Exodus Revealed, and it gives some compelling evidence as to why they feel that this is the spot that the nation of Israel crossed over the Red Sea. And one of the biggest things that they have is they do this big underwater excavation right here across this part. And one of the things they find are a bunch of ruins of chariots. And the great thing is you have all these reefs and the reefs have formed on the chariots, which kind of preserved the wheels and the, you know, all the different pieces. You know, why in the world would you have chariot, you know, at the bottom of the Red Sea? Well, we're going to find out uh, at the end of what we see here in this chapter. But this brings up, you know, another reality that this is very likely the place that um, they actually cross. But the biggest thing to understand here is they're in a place where they're trapped. And God says to them, hey, Pharaoh's going to recognize this. And he's going to change. The man who said, hey, let them go is going to say, let's pursue them. Let's go get them. They're trapped. We have our opportunity. Let's bring our army and let's do it. So it seems that God has led Israel to a place where they're boxed in and trapped. But you know what? God wasn't trapping Israel. That wasn't God's plan at all. Basically, what God is doing here is setting an ambush for Pharaoh and his army. God knew that when Pharaoh and his army saw this, they couldn't resist. They were going to pursue this. This was all for the purpose of ultimately destroying them, not destroying the Israelites. And that's why he warns Moses in verses 3 and 4, For Pharaoh will save the children of Israel. They are bewildered by the land. The wilderness has closed them in. But notice then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and all of his army that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. 
So God has a specific plan. It looks like the Israelites are trapped. He's like, no, (laughs) I'm doing this to draw in Pharaoh and his army. And I'm going to do something that's going to gain honor from me. We're going to see what that is. It's going to show the Egyptians once again that God is the Lord. You know, we notice this with every plague. One of the purposes of the plague was to reveal to the nation of Egypt, but also to the world and to future generations, that God is the Lord. He demonstrates His power for this purpose. He says, I got another one. Those ten plagues did it, but I got something that's going to even be bigger. Egypt's not going to forget this one. This one's going to actually be more devastating to them than all the plagues that has come before them. But it's not just something for the Egyptians to see. It's not just something for the Egyptians to learn from. God has brought the nation of Israel to this place so that they can see what He's about to do and so that they can learn something very important about God as well. Well, now what God's warned them is about to happen. Verses 5-9. through Now it was told the king of Egypt that the people had fled and the heart of Pharaoh and his servants was turned against the people. And they said, Why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his people with him. Also he took 600 choice chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with the captains over every one of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the children of Israel. And the children of Israel went out with boldness. So the Egyptians pursued them, all the horses and chariots of Pharaoh, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them camping by the sea beside Pi-Hahirath before Baal-Zephon. After ten plagues, Pharaoh finally is willing to let the Israelites go. But now, we saw that moment of softening in his heart. He's chosen to be hard-hearted again, and he's regretting his decision. And notice what he says to his people. Why have we done this that we have let Israel go from serving us? What a strange question to ask. I'm sure everybody in Egypt could give ten great reasons for why he let them go. I mean, this is literally just days before this, the tenth plague hit. Why did we let them go? What were we thinking? We lost our servants, our slaves. You know, this demonstrates how quick people are to forget what God has done and demonstrated to them. Why did we let Israel go? Pharaoh gets angry. Angry that he gave in to God. Angry that he let the Israelites go and he hardens his heart and he decides, no, I'm going to get my chariots. I'm going to get my army and we're going and we're going to get our slaves. Pharaoh had, at that point in time, the most sophisticated army the most technologically advanced army. And what was the thing that made them more advanced was chariots. And we're told that he took 600 of his chariots and all the chariots of Egypt and his whole army, and they go out and they pursue the Israelites and they overtake them camping at most likely that spot that I showed. They're at the beach and now they're coming through the mountain range. Israel can't go forward, there's the Red Sea. They can't go left and right, there's the mountains, and they can't go back because there's Pharaoh's army. Well, let's see how Israel responds when they're in this place where they feel trapped. Verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt so with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. So now Israel's in this place where they feel trapped. Why did God bring us here? We're not, where, where are we going to go now? We've got to go all the way back through the mountains. And they turn around, and they see Pharaoh's army pursuing them. 
And we're told that they were greatly afraid. And I want you to see the difference between their response to this situation and Moses, who's also in the same situation as them, his response. Because they both respond very differently to the same circumstance. Now, before we look at these two responses, let's remember that God has already told them. He told Moses to tell them the information that would be very vital right now. Hey, guys, Pharaoh's army is going to pursue you. This shouldn't be a shock. What's going on? Why are they here? Well, God just told us they were coming. Yeah, we've been expecting you. They should have known that, but God tells them something more. It wasn't just like, hey, I got some bad news. I brought you to this place where there's no way out and Pharaoh's army's coming. See you guys. No, he says, Pharaoh's army is going to pursue you, but don't worry because I am going to gain honor over Pharaoh and his armies. Terminology that God has used throughout the plagues. He's gained honor how before? By bringing his destruction and judgment upon the Egyptians. So they've had this information. Now I can understand that this might not mean much a couple months before this. When God's never showed up before, they don't recognize anything, they've been in slavery for so long, and this message comes, and I can see them being like, whatever, we're dead. Doesn't mean anything to me that you're going to do anything. What have you done for me in a while? I can see how they could respond to that if this happened a few months ago, but you know what? They've just experienced ten plagues. Ten times God brought His power. Ten times He gained honor over the nation of Egypt. And you would think that that would cause the Israelites to give God the benefit of the doubt on this one. You would think it would cause them to recognize, you know what, He has the power to protect us. Look at what He just did to deliver us from Egypt. But unfortunately, that is not how the Israelites respond. They come with three questions and a final statement. We're told they cry out to God, but they direct this, these questions and statements to Moses, or both really to Moses and God. And I want you to recognize that these questions and statements are coming from people who think they're about to die. They think that Pharaoh's army is going to wipe them out, and they're afraid. They're coming from people who are no longer trusting what God has just told them about gaining honor over Pharaoh and his army. The first question they ask is, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? This question is just full of sarcasm. Egypt was known for its many, many graves. And if you go back now today, you know, the pyramids and all these things, what are we constantly talking about? You know, the graves of pharaohs and things. But they had so many graves. So this was a sarcastic statement. Were there no graves in Egypt? I mean, Egypt's full of graves. Why'd you take us out here? If we're going to die, we might as well have just died in Egypt. Why'd you bring us out to the wilderness to die is ultimately what they're saying. The second question was, why have you dealt so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? Moses, why'd you bring us out of here to begin with? Why did we get delivered? If this is just the reason you brought us through the wilderness to die... All these plagues, everything just so it could end like this? The third question. Is it not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Remember when Moses first came, wasn't received so well? Moses, remember when you first came to us? Didn't we just tell you, leave us alone? Remember the first time you you came and brought that message and then we had to build bricks without straw? Yeah, that worked out real well with us. You know, they're kind of going back to that point. Remember when we told you to leave us alone? Now look, we're all going to die. Great, thanks Moses. Big help you've been. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. How quickly they've forgotten how horrible it was to serve the Egyptians. But now they've just kind of gotten this defeated mindset of we're all dead. And this statement's really not just to Moses, this is to God. Why have you delivered us if this is the end? Why have you brought us here if all you're going to do is kill us out in the wilderness? What's going on, God? And it's kind of just a sad (laughs) statement for Moses that they actually accuse him of delivering them out of Egypt just because he wants to kill them in the wilderness. But that's really their thoughts. Foolish statement. It's only been a few days since God destroyed Egypt with ten plagues. A few days since God showed His power in such mighty ways. And it's only been the same day since God told them, I am going to gain honor over Him. They didn't believe it. 
But now they face the Egyptians again, and they have quickly forgotten the God who delivered them. Interesting, Pharaoh quickly forgot. Why did we let them go anyway? Because uh, God brought his judgment on us ten times, that's why. Oh, why, why didn't we leave? Why did we go? I mean, they're in the same boat as Pharaoh, where it seems they've so quickly forgotten the one who's done so much, and now they stop trusting in the power of God to protect them from the Egyptians. You know, I think this is so sad because I look at this and we can kind of criticize them, but how often we are like this, where God brings deliverance over and over for us, delivers us from Satan, delivers us from sin, delivers us from the world, and we see this constant deliverance from God, and then some new thing comes our way. We start freaking out, thinking, Lord, you're never going to, why'd you bring me here? What's going on? I'm just going to die here. Why'd you deliver me ever? If this was going to be my end, instead of just trusting that God will continue to deliver and protect like he always has. Now, notice that Moses experiences the same situation. He's sitting there on that beach, too. He's trapped. The Egyptian army's coming. But his response is very, very different. Moses responds by saying, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you and you shall hold your peace. This is so fascinating that he's in the exact same situation, but has a completely different perspective on what's going on. He doesn't see the Israelites as trapped he sees them in the perfect place for God to save them. You see, Israel looked at their situation and they concluded, we're trapped, we're going to die. Moses looks at this situation and he concludes, the Egyptians are trapped and God is going to kill them all and you're never going to see them again. Two very different perspectives of what was going on. Moses and Israel are in the same situation, but they see it from very different ways. The Israelites were looking at their situation from their own flesh perspective. But Moses is looking at this from God's perspective. Well, how do we know that Moses is seeing it from God's and they're seeing it from their fleshly perspective? Because Moses is just taking the word of God, what he has just told them, and trusting in it. That's why he knows that they're all going to die because God says, I'm going to gain honor over them. That's why he's confident that God's going to bring salvation because God has just told them that. So he's trusting in the Word of God, which gives him this perspective of, hey, hey, you guys, don't worry. Don't be afraid. Remember, God said they're coming, but he also said he's going to take care of them. So we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be worried. God's going to deal with them. He doesn't know how it's going to happen. He just knows God's going to save us. He doesn't know this Red Sea is going to part. He doesn't know how all this is going to transpire. He doesn't have to know that. He just knows the God that I serve says he's going to take care of us, and so we don't need to be afraid. We can trust what he's going to do. But notice the difference in perspective comes back to one group not willing to trust the Word of God, and Moses is willing to trust the Word of God. That's the biggest change. As Moses trusts the Word of God, all of a sudden his perspective is godly, He's not afraid of the enemy. He understands what God's going to do because God in His Word has revealed that. And then you have the Israelites who are afraid, who are thinking we're going to die, who think God, the enemy against them is going to destroy them. Why? Because they won't trust the Word of God. They won't believe what God's Word says. And now they have come to this perspective and this conclusion that goes against God's Word and causes them to have a perspective that is now ungodly as well. And this is why when we come to things in life, we have all sorts of circumstances like the Israelites did, whether or not we're going to respond with a godly response from God's perspective or for our own fleshly perspective is really going to be based on, do I trust God's word? Do I know God's word? Do I know what he says and do am I willing to believe it? Am I willing to hold on to it in the midst of this? Because whether or not I do that is going to determine how I see what my perspective will be like. And as you can see, what a difference it would have made if they were all just like, bring it on. We're, we got God on our side. Go ahead. Come on, Pharaoh. We're not afraid of you. I mean, look what God just did to you. You want some more? Fine. That's not their perspective because they wouldn't trust what God told them. You know, God could have taken the Israelites the quick way. 
It had only taken a couple weeks to get from where they were to the promised land. But he chooses this long journey. We already noted one of those things was to protect them from war with the Philistines, but he's got lessons. Lessons that the Israelites need to learn. And I believe one of the reasons God is doing this because he wasn't only concerned about getting his people out of Egypt. He's also concerned about getting Egypt out of his people. The first one was simple for God. Easy. I can get you out of Egypt in a day if I want. Getting Egypt out of you, that's a hard hard thing. You guys are going to be in the wilderness for a while. It's going to take me a while to get Egypt out of you. We're constantly going to be seeing them. Oh, we want to go back to Egypt. Oh, Egypt's food was so much better. Oh, Egypt was so great. Getting Egypt out of them is the hard part. Getting them out of Egypt, that's the easy part. We're going to see through this wilderness journey all these lessons that God is going to be teaching the nation of Israel, and so many of them, is let's rip Egypt out of you. So often through Scripture, Egypt, picture of the world. And the same thing with us. You know, God didn't just save us from our sins. He also sanctified us. Yeah, I, I saved you, but now there's this process. This process of ridding you from that sinful life that you used to live. You're saved from your sins. You're no longer going to pay for that in hell. But guess what? It doesn't mean that you're some great person who doesn't sin. I want to change you. And it's going to be this process through your life where I'm going to take these lessons that you're going to learn where I'm going to start to remove the sin from you and it's going to change the way in which you live. So we have Israel's response to this situation. we got Moses' response to this situation. Well, now we're going to see God's response to the situation of Pharaoh and his army coming after God's people. Verse 15. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward, but lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I indeed will harden the heart of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then... The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Well, God tells the nation of Israel through Moses two more important things. First, how he's going to deliver the Israelites from this trap situation. And second, how he's going to get honor over Pharaoh and his army. Well, God's going to deliver the nation of Israel in a spectacular way. He's going to part the thing that's blocking them which is the Red Sea, and he's going to enable them to walk across on dry land. And God's going to gain honor over Pharaoh and his army by first hardening Pharaoh's heart so that they continue this foolish pursuit of fighting against God. And that pursuit is going to lead them into the Red Sea after the nation of Israel, and that is where God is going to kill them all by drowning them. And this will be another way that the Egyptians are going to know that God is the Lord, that he has gained honor, not only over Pharaoh, but over his army, his chariots, his horsemen. So first, let's see how God protects the Israelites, 19 and 20. And the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and a pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. Thus it was a cloud of darkness to the one, and it gave light by night to the other so that one did not come near the other all that night. So Israel is trapped. We already noted this. In front of them is the Red Sea. Behind them is uh, the Egyptian army. On the sides of them are mountains. they got nowhere to go. But there's nothing between them and the Egyptian army. At any point, the Egyptian army could attack. They're very vulnerable at this point, And they're afraid. And God does something miraculous to protect them. He tends two things to stand between them and the Egyptian army. Those two things are the angel of God and a pillar of cloud. Both of those things were before them. Remember, they were leading them, and they go from being before them to going behind them, which would put them between them and the Egyptian army. And God does this to protect them. This pillar of cloud kept the Egyptian army away from the Israelites all night, And we're told this pillar of cloud provided light to the Israelites in the night, but it kept the Egyptians in the darkness. Another supernatural thing that it can produce light 
one direction and keep the other in darkness. But God does this, this protective measure. And He's protecting Israel because He has a way of escape for them. But it's going to take the night before that's ready to go. So now we're going to see how God delivers them, verse 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night and made the sea into dry land, and the waters were divided. So the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters were a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Remember, God already told Moses what to do earlier on, and now Moses does it. He lifts up his hand, stretches his hand over the Red Sea, and notice what the Lord causes the sea to do. He causes it to go back by the strong east wind. God could have done anything He wanted to do this, but He brings this strong east wind, and notice it lasts all night long. But not only does it divide the water, which is important so that you can actually go through it, but the strong east wind does more than just divide the water. It also, that whole night, is drying the ground. To send millions of people over nasty, muddy water would be difficult. God dries it all out. Not only is the water separate, but the ground that they're going is dry as well. So he's preparing the way for them to walk across the Red Sea. So the Israelites were in this place where they felt trapped. They got Pharaoh on one side, the Red Sea on the other, mountains on the left and right. But notice that God literally brings the Israelites through the thing that was trapping them. He didn't remove it. He just says, I'm going to take you through what's the barrier in front of you. The Red Sea, yeah, guess what? We're going right, we're right, right through it together. And I think it's an important thing for us to remember of how God often brings deliverance to us. Because typically, when we want deliverance, one of our most common prayers is, God, remove this. Get rid of the situation or the person or whatever it is we're wanting to be delivered from. And sometimes God does that. We see that sometimes in Scripture. But I think more commonly, God says, you know, I'm not going to remove it. What I'm going to do is we're going to walk through it together. I'm going to bring you right through it. It's going to be me and you, and we're going to go through this thing that is what you see as this barrier that's insurmountable. I'm going to take you through it. The movie Prince of Egypt, I think, has a, a great visual for this scene that I want us to look at. Don't worry, you'll get to see the next scene as well. Moses looks great for being 80, by the way. <laughs> Well, now we're going to see the details. So the God opens up the Red Sea. They walk through. But now we're going to see what God does to take care of the Egyptians. Verse 23. And the Egyptians pursued and went after them into the midst of the sea, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. Now it came to pass in the morning watch that the Lord looked down upon the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud, and He troubled the army of the Egyptians. And He took off their chariot wheels so that they drove them with difficulty, and the Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, on their chariots and on their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and when the morning appeared, the sea returned to its full depth, while the Egyptians were fleeing into it. So the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Then the waters returned and covered the chariots, the horsemen, and all the army of Pharaoh that came into the sea after them. Not so much as one of them remained, but the children of Israel had walked on dry land in the midst of the sea, and the waters were a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. As the Israelites are walking through the Red Sea, notice that God now removes the barriers that were between the nation of Israel and the Egyptian army, the angel of God, and the pillar of cloud. That was keeping that army from pursuing, from coming any closer. And God says, here, it's gone. Remember, God's purpose in this wasn't to trap Israel. It was to ultimately trap the Egyptians. And when that barrier is removed, the Egyptian army now sees that they are free to pursue. They see this Red Sea open. The nation of Israel traveled through, and so they decide we're going to follow them through the Red Sea. But God does something to slow them down. doesn't want them to catch any of the 
Israelites, remember they're riding on chariots, so they would have been able to move much quicker. And so we're told that he um, troubles the army of the Egyptians, and the way he does that is he took off their chariot wheels, so they drove them with difficulty. Now this is something that I find sad. Notice what we're told here. While this is happening, the Egyptians realize something, something that they should have realized a long time ago. The Lord was fighting for the Israelites against them. And they decide, let's flee. <laughs> uh, yeah, maybe those ten plagues, and when Pharaoh says, who's in the army with me? Who's going to pursue them? I'm not going. <laughs> after what that God just did to us, we're not pursuing them. And after I've just been kept back by this pillar of cloud and by this angel of God, and now as I see the Red Sea parted, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm fine where I am. It's not till they actually go and pursue and they get into the Red Sea that they finally come to the conclusion, you know what? Maybe this is a bad idea. God's not fighting for us. He's fighting against us. You think? Well, a little too late. As they're in the Red Sea, as they're seeking to flee, God tells Moses, once again, stretch out your hand over the sea. But this time, instead of the sea parting, all the water that's being held back by God is just going to come crashing down on this army of Egyptians, on their chariots, on their horses. And we're told that every single Egyptian in the army was killed, including Pharaoh. The man that had all these opportunities to submit to God, the man that could have just given over to the Lord, obeyed God, hardened his heart, hardened his heart. The one time we think, finally, he softened his heart. Nope. He chose to harden it again, which ultimately led him to his death. Another good visual, we'll see the rest, that face of Pharaoh when he first sees the parted Red Sea of like, and then that change of like, I don't care, I'm going to pursue them anyway. But it ultimately leads to his and all the Egyptians' death. Chapter ends with these words. So the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. So as God said, and then as Moses reiterated, hey, don't fear, God is going to save us. God does save them. But notice His salvation is so complete. Not only did He protect them, He could have just brought them through, closed it up, Egypt and the armies on one side of the Red Sea, you know, the nation of Israel is like, ha ha, you can't get us on the other side. God didn't do that. He went beyond just protecting them to destroying this army in a very vivid way that Israel got to see. And this was such a good confirmation to Israel that their freedom, their deliverance was complete. You know, an oppressed people often are slow to believe that they're free from their oppressors, especially when their oppressors are still living. You would expect them to think, when are the Egyptians going to wise up and come after us again? When are they going to bring their army to try to bring us back into slavery? I'm sure that thought would have continued to go with their mind, and they'd be right. They already did it. So God just takes that away completely. <laughs> Don't worry. There's no more Egyptian army. There's no more Pharaoh. I've just killed them all. Your oppressors are dead. What was once holding you in slavery is gone, and you are completely free. So the ten plagues deliver the nation of Israel from the land of Egypt. But this miracle of God parting the Red Sea and then collapsing it down, it delivered them from Pharaoh and his army. And what a way for God to once again gain honor. The word comes back. Think of the people in Egypt now probably mainly just women and children. Their leader's dead. Their army's gone. Their country's already been devastated by ten plagues. If those ten plagues weren't enough to show them who the Lord really showed them, finally when our leader hardens his heart and goes after those people one last time, he never comes back. God takes care of him once and for all. And we see now a new response. The response before, Moses, why would you bring us out here? God, you just brought us out here to die. Now we're told that they fear God, believing in Him and His servant, Moses. This is exactly the lesson that God wanted them to learn. God wanted them to know that, hey, you guys can trust me. I'm going to take care of you. I'll deliver you from whatever is there. And also, I want you to know this is my man here, Moses. Trust him. He tried to encourage you guys. You guys said, hey, why'd you bring me out here to die, Moses? Hey, believe in him as well. 
And so this lesson that God wants to teach them is something that they learn. Unfortunately, not something that they continue to believe in. But at this point in time, they're like, all right, Lord, we finally do trust that you can do this. And I think this is something that hopefully we can learn from as we look at this account that God is always faithful and worthy of our trust. And as we'll see in the wilderness wandering, this does not last long for the Egyptian or for the Israelites, and hopefully it will last long for us. So any thoughts on these two chapters that we looked at tonight?